0: The People's History of Kansas City podcast is supported by the Kemper Museum of Contemporary Art, celebrating 30 years at the block party on Saturday, May 4th. Visitors can enjoy music, food trucks, exhibitions, and artist-led activities. Learn more at KemperArt.org.
1: This is a People's History of Kansas City, a podcast from KCUR Studios. I'm Suzanne Hogan. Hello.
2: Hello, Catherine.
1: And I'm starting today's episode at the Historic Garment District Museum downtown, one of the few places that celebrates the achievements of working women in Kansas City, with collection specialist Katherine Warfield.
2: The big ask I have is, and we have to tell every visitor this, it's, it's really difficult, and I know it because it's textiles and fabric, but if you could not touch, that'd be great. <laughs> so, so that is a problem? Constantly. <laughs>
1: I'll be honest, walking through this museum, it is really hard to not want to touch all the beautiful dresses and coats that these garment workers, stitchers, mostly working class women, made right here in Kansas City so many years ago.
3: Oh wow, this one's really pretty.
1: (laughs) There is no large scale garment manufacturing happening here today, but Kansas City's garment district used to be really big. It spanned a 14 block area of downtown. Catherine Warfield says in the early to mid 20th century, the district was the second largest employer in the city and it was a major player in the nation.
2: Kansas City was probably, it depends on who you ask, probably the second or the third largest ready to wear garment center in the United States behind New York and at that point Chicago.
1: The story of Kansas City's garment industry history is also a story about race, gender and class disparities, though. A little over 100 years ago, people were fighting for basic liberties and racial equity. Women's roles were changing, and working-class people were demanding better conditions and
2: pay. I think it's important to talk about where we've come from so we can fully appreciate kind of what we have today. There is one woman who sticks out as a pioneer
1: in the fight for working women in Kansas City. Her name is not that well known,
2: but you've probably
1: heard of one of her adversaries.
2: How can you talk about making clothes in Kansas City and, and not talk about Nellie Don? The Nell Donnelly dress company, Nellie Don. Nell Donnelly Reeds. Nell Donnelly was a pretty larger-than-life <laughs> figure. Nell
1: Donnelly Reed, aka Nellie Don, was a Kansas City fashion icon. A trailblazing women's clothing designer and pioneering businesswoman who started her own clothing company in 1916.
2: Nellie Don was one of the companies that started the garment industry in Kansas City, but she never unionized. But
1: this story isn't about Nellie Don. It's about a woman who had a very different agenda from Nellie Don. Her
3: name was Sarah Lloyd Green. I think it's really important that people in history who are a part of, um, especially labor movements, become household names, but I'm not at all surprised that they're not.
1: Sarah Lloyd Green worked courageously to break the glass ceiling that towered over working women in the early 20th century.
0: She kind of shot straight from the hip and, and didn't hold back.
1: She was a suffragette, a feminist. She organized workers and challenged patriarchy and authority. Being expected to solely
2: take care of you know, children, husband, household, um, I think that was really that just in itself felt like not enough for these
0: women. She just thought that people should be treated right and people should have dignity, and she was gonna fight like hell to make sure that that happened.
1: Today, we're highlighting the story of one of the many unsung heroines of Kansas City's labor history, Sarah Lloyd Green, who, yeah, isn't a common household name or anything, but how many local feminists, suffragettes, and labor activists are? When Sarah Green died in 1929, the Kansas City star called her the champion of the lowly. Quote, scores of mourners from every walk of life attended her funeral. And this is her story. One person who was not a fan of Sarah Green was a guy named Horace Havelock Anderson, or H.H. Anderson. He was the head of Kansas City's Employers Association, a group made up of some of the richest people in the city. And he was very anti-union. In 1919, the New York Times published an article looking at the growing tensions between labor organizers and employers groups across the Midwest. And this is what H.H. H. Anderson had to say about Sarah Green.
4: This Sarah Green is a dangerous person for this community because of her radicalism and because she not only works among her own people, but
1: among ours. KCUR producer Matthew Long Middleton reading H.H. H. Anderson's quote. She's allowed to talk in the best society of Kansas City. She gets
4: invited to speak before women's clubs and other organizations made up of the very wives of the members of the Employers Association. And some of our wives believe her. And they, in their turn, fill their husbands' heads with some very radical notions.
1: Radical notions like allowing women to participate in democracy or get paid a decent wage. The reporter then asked Sarah Green to respond to H.H. H. Anderson's attack to say exactly what it is she had been saying to all these upper class wives. Oh, a lot
3: of interesting things.
1: Here's producer Mackenzie Martin reading Sarah's response.
3: For example, there are the girls in the bookbinderies who ask for $22 a week and are offered 16 It costs a woman employed in bookbindery or any other working woman in Kansas City $10 a week for her room and two meals a day. Two dollars and ten cents for her six lunches downtown. Seventy-five cents. For Sarah broke down and listed day. all the different expenses working women had. They total fourteen dollars and fifty-seven cents, which on a wage of sixteen leaves a dollar and forty-three cents for clothes, shoes, hats, doctors' bills, recreation, and saving for vacation expenses, or old age, or whatever else you may want to save for. That is a sample of the things the wives of the employers are hearing about. It is a good thing for the wives to know. This article was published in December of 1919.
1: World War I ended a year prior. Women were fighting for the right to vote. The deadly influenza pandemic was still ravaging communities. The working poor were struggling.
3: It is a scheme to get a great deal for comparatively little, or rather divert attention from the fact that a great deal is being got for very little. It is what my father would call using a sprat to catch a mackerel. I had to look up what using
1: a sprat to catch a mackerel means. Basically, it's to take a small risk in hopes of a big gain.
3: We don't want our recreation given to us to blind us to some other things. And as an act of smug charity, we prefer to choose our own fun and have it at our own expense. When Sarah Green gave this interview, it was around the end of
1: the progressive era, a time when people were calling for reforms to eliminate political
3: corruption and advocating for basic rights for women and workers. The working woman of the United States is clean and decent. You can't patronize a coal miner's daughter who has been a waitress for 10 years. And I was elected to my present job because thousands of other women in this part of the country feel the same as I do about these things. The 19th Amendment didn't give women the right to vote until eight months after this
1: interview, which goes to show how bold Sarah Green was for her time. She spoke her mind when she wanted to. That's in part why she'd been elected as the president of Kansas City's chapter of the Women's Trade Union League in the first place. The national group helped middle and working class women demand safer working conditions, shorter work weeks, and better pay. Here we have a person who was at the center point for the entire movement of how women were treated around labor in Kansas City. So why don't we know more about her? Jeff Stilly is on a mission to make sure that changes. Hey, Jeff. Hello, how are you doing? Good, how are you?
0: I'm doing all right.
1: Jeff is a graduate student at the University of Missouri. He's been writing his dissertation on Kansas City's labor movement during the 1910s, a time when Kansas City was seeing growing unrest of how laborers were treated.
0: And this figure, Sarah Lloyd Green, kept uh, popping up over and over again in my research. She is kind of a central figure in every strike throughout the period, whether it involved women workers or not.
1: Jeff is the person who emailed me a while back suggesting Sarah Green as a person to explore in this podcast. Yes, I do read every email and suggestion that's sent to me, so keep them coming. According to Jeff, Sarah Jane Pretherk was born in Wisconsin in 1883 to Welsh immigrants who had just arrived to the United States a couple years before.
0: Her uh, father, who was a coal miner, was a really avid unionist since he was a teenager and really impressed the values and culture of uh, unions on his daughter from an early age. And apparently her mother also had uh, some sort of feminist convictions.
1: Sarah's family, her parents, two sisters and brother, eventually moved to Iowa, where as a teenager Sarah became pregnant. But the baby's father didn't stick around. In 1903, all three generations of the Pratherick family moved to Kansas City and they continued to live together. Records show that Sarah found a husband in Kansas City, a man named Curtis Green. He and two boarders were also living in the Patrick's Kansas City household. Sarah was working as a waitress.
0: I will note that waitresses at, at this point in U.S. history are kind of on the margins of society. Many of them are divorced or single mothers. Upper class women kind of look down on them as, you know, not living up to their standards of morality, and it was a real kind of sisterhood.
1: Sarah was connecting with all these other waitresses as her sister started working as a telephone switchboard operator.
0: Some peculiar
4: switching devices made their appearance during the first few years of switchboard development.
1: And it's through her sister that Sarah first got involved with Kansas City's Women's Trade Union League. The national group that had been trying to organize local telephone switchboard operators. It was part of a bigger citywide effort to unionize more industries in Kansas City during the
4: 1910s. That's
1: because long before Dolly Parton sang Us Nine to Five, Things like an eight-hour workday, 40-hour work week, minimum wage, overtime pay, protections against child labor, or even just basic safety conditions on the job were things that workers in this time period did not have. The
4: women l- worked very long hours. And of course, there's that notorious sign that was posted, if you don't come to work on Sunday, don't
1: bother coming in on Monday. According to local labor historian Judy Ansel, the 1880s to the 1930s was a particularly violent era known as the Labor Wars.
4: It's an era of many violent strikes, many deaths of workers trying to win their rights, of hundreds of injunctions from courts, stopping strikes, penalizing union leaders, locking them up. And it, it was an era in which the political leaders of this country absolutely refuse to recognize the rights of workers.
1: Judy Ansel also hosts the Heartland Labor Forum, a weekly radio show on Kansas City's community radio station, KKFI.
4: Welcome to the Heartland Labor Forum, a weekly show of news, information, and commentary by and for the working people of Kansas City.
1: She says this era during the labor wars was a time when people with different economic and political philosophies were organizing together out of a real need to protect the marginalized working class. You've probably heard of some of the high profile national actions and big events that happened at the beginning of this era. There was the Haymarket Massacre in Chicago, which started as a peaceful protest and strike in support of the eight hour workday, but became violent and deadly. Then there was the 1909 shirtwaist strike in New York City, an action led by young women working in the garment district, asking for better pay and safer conditions. And most notable was probably the tragic Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire, an event that showed the chilling, horrific consequences of these poor conditions.
4: 165 women workers died, many jumping from the windows because the fire escapes didn't work. Women piled up against the door and got trampled and couldn't get up.
1: This tragedy sparked even more unions to mobilize across the nation. But the forces organizing against these groups were very harsh.
4: Very often, strikes became very violent. And they became very violent because they sent out police, thugs, Pinkertons, militia, and the army, in some cases, to repress strikes. It's not a very pretty period of our
1: history. That was also true in Kansas City. Violent strikes here in Kansas City also go back to the late 1800s with the railroad workers. But in the early 1900s, there was a lot of action around here. There were strikes among meatpacking workers, free speech strikes in the river market organized by the Wobblies or industrial workers of the world. They were fighting attempts by the city council to outlaw picketing. In response, the protesters packed the jails, singing songs to annoyed guards as a tactic.
4: All the wealth you make is taken by exploiting parasites.
1: And Sarah Green, our Welsh mom working as a waitress, was living here in Kansas City during that time. She started out by helping organize the telephone operators. She started a union of waitresses. She advocated for unemployed workers. She had a knack for making friends with all types of people, male trade unionists, elite women, and the working poor.
0: Sometimes businessmen in the city would be asked to be a guest speaker at a meeting at a women's club around the city. And women in those clubs would tip off Sarah Green and she would kind of sneak into the meeting in the back. And anytime the uh, business owner would say something false or that she didn't like, she would kind of jump up and start yelling at him basically in front of the club women uh, and making him look like a fool.
1: Sarah Green also saw education as a key ingredient of a successful movement. She wanted to unionize teachers in Kansas City and to
3: institutionalize a pro-union curriculum for kids. It is my firm belief that if the children be taught economics truthfully, while the mind is young and plastic, and that trade unionism is right, the same rule will apply in trade unionism as in religion. Teach them all young, trade unionism is right, and this knowledge can never be taken away from them.
1: She and her husband, Curtis, helped teach night classes for working women, courses about labor history, English literacy, and how to organize and run meetings. Then uh,
0: around 1914, 1915, 1916, the economy was not so great. And there's a lot of unemployment.
1: Jeff Stilley says Sarah Green was jumping into the organizing scene at a time of a lot of turmoil in Kansas City and the world.
0: In the summer of 1917, you have an explosion of strikes in the city, uh, beginning mostly with a streetcar strike in August of 1917. And that set off kind of a cascade of events.
1: There were dozens of strikes in 1917 across the city. And another major thing happened in 1917. The U.S. had entered World War I. The labor movement split over the war. Labor historian Judy Ansell says more left-leaning groups were against what they called an imperialist war, while other groups pledged to support it. Sarah Green had been elected as president of the local chapter of the Women's Trade Union League a year before. As a tactic, the group landed somewhere in the middle. They'd originally opposed the war when it first started in 1914, but during a national conference in Kansas City in 1917, they joined the American Federation of Labor in supporting the American war effort, shifting the focus of the conference to the suffragette movement and increasing opportunities for working women. Sarah Green was too fierce to be deterred by any of this, though, as Kansas City's scene was a hotbed of activism and strikes were on the rise in spite of, at times, really violent consequences. The streetcar strikes of 1917 were especially crazy. Lots of property damage, bricks through windows, trolley cars set on fire, attacks mostly instigated by hired private strikebreakers.
0: Basically, they are organized crime (laughs) organizations that would come into a city during a strike and um, kind of shoot up union members, run over uh, strikers.
1: One major event that kept Sarah Green busy during the war was the laundry workers' strike of 1918. It was actually part of a larger national general strike that was going on. But in Kansas City, it was a moment when people organized across racial divides.
4: And this is one of the few instances where we see real unity between black and white workers, in this case, women workers, primarily who had horrific working conditions, very dangerous working conditions. And they organized, They and they went on strike, and the employers were, were not dealing with them at all, were refusing to negotiate. And Sarah Lloyd-Green was one of the leaders.
1: These small instances of interracial solidarity among workers were rare, Jeff Stilley says. So when they happened, they were really powerful.
0: But I don't want to overstate the case that you know this was some sort of liberal paradise or something for uh, for black workers.
1: Black and white laundry workers were some of the lowest paid workers. These women were on their feet for 9, 10, 12 hours a day, handling harsh chemicals and extremely high temperatures.
0: They are in rooms that might be, uh, if they're lucky, 90 degrees, might be 100 degrees, might even be 120 degrees. So uh, these were women who fainted quite often. It was a hazardous job all sorts of health problems related with working in commercial laundries.
1: One factory inspector was bedridden for a whole week after spending just a short amount of time in one of the laundries. Jeff says Sarah Green's leadership style, organizing laundry workers across racial divides while maintaining a connection with upper-class white women's groups, was a big part of her success as a leader and part of what intrigued him about her story.
0: One instance that stands out is in February of 1918, during the commercial laundry strike, which had been going on for about two weeks at this point. Some of Green's allies in different women's clubs around the the city had organized some public hearings to collect evidence about working conditions.
1: They arranged to have these hearings at the Muehlbach Hotel downtown. They invited both laundry owners, city officials, and laundry workers to come together to talk, in hopes that they would finally recognize the union.
0: And so everybody files into this uh, conference room in the Mulebach Hotel. Sarah Green is there. A lot of the white women strikers are there. Uh, and they're just about to get started when someone brings word that uh, black women strikers were denied entry to the hotel. So Muehlbach was a Jim Crow hotel at this time. And Sarah Green immediately asked the white strikers to leave in protest, and they did so. And there's other evidence during the strike that uh, white and black women were arrested together on the picket line.
1: In Kansas City, over 20,000 workers showed solidarity with the women laundry workers, though it all ended in a stalemate. Jeff says wages did increase, only temporarily. The strikers did get their jobs back, but they didn't get union recognition. But Sarah kept on. She helped organize a strike among women conductors working for the streetcar, and she had had a robust track record. Having organized black and white women working in meatpacking, she started a domestic workers union for black women, raising their wages 25% across the city. Which is pretty incredible, considering each worker is hired by a separate individual in a private home. She also had been arrested for leading a wave of walkouts by women in food and soap manufacturing. But the charges didn't stick. All this to say, by the time World War I ended in 1918, Sarah Green had become a pretty well-known person in Kansas City. She was invited to speak with more elite women's club groups. But while she was popular, she wasn't necessarily liked by everyone. Some historians say she was known to say racist things against Asians and Asian-Americans, and her agenda and fiery personality wasn't for everyone. Hence what led to that intense back and forth in that New York Times article from 1919 with H.H. H.
3: Anderson with the Employers Association.
4: This Sarah Green is a dangerous person for this community.
3: You can't patronize a coal miner's daughter who has been a waitress for 10 years. The year to follow, 1920,
1: was a monumental year for feminists and suffragettes nationwide, with the passage of the 19th Amendment, which finally granted white women the right to vote. It's important to make that distinction. American Indians still continued to fight for that right through the 1920s. Asian Americans through the 1930s and 40s. And Jim Crow laws continued to suppress black voters up until 1965 with the passage of the Voting Rights Act. As a suffragette herself, for Sarah Green, winning that right to vote in 1920 was a big deal, a major battle victory. But Sarah's fight was far from over. How war changed Sarah Green's life after a quick break. In 1921, Jeff Stilley says Sarah Green was sent on a trip that forever changed her life.
0: She was uh, supposed to go over to Europe for two months, and it turns into seven months.
1: She'd been chosen to travel to Geneva to serve as a delegate for the Congress of the International Federation of Working Women. But she had a lot of mishaps even getting there. And then when she arrived in Europe, she had a lot of difficulties finding people who could speak English. And she struggled with basic logistics. It was a hard trip and tough to be away from her family for so long. But the payoff of time spent abroad, in the end, was profound.
0: Seeing the destruction of World War I and seeing all the mass graves and cemeteries, and she comes back to America kind of committed to working towards a peaceful world and preventing all future wars as well.
3: We must put upon the Statute Books of America, the best country of the world, a law that will make war unlawful, and that we are going to stand for united nations, not nation, and stand for world peace. She was saying all this before World War II, 25 years
1: before the creation of the United Nations. Eventually, though, in the 1920s, Sarah got a job working as a social worker for Jackson County, where she spent a lot of time aggressively advocating for women whose husbands had left them.
0: She uh, had no issues with visiting a man in his, you know, apartment to kind of shame him or in public to shame him. She would also ask around her wealthier friends to donate money and kind of harass her wealthier club women friends to provide clothes and money and food for these poor women.
1: And she continued to be critical of upper and middle class women who demonize poverty who she believed had patronizing attitudes and charities that undermined a working woman's autonomy.
0: She really could not stand snobbery. She could not stand uh, charity. She just thought that everybody should be independent and lead their own dignified lives and get to decide for themselves.
1: Then, in 1929, Sarah Green died of pneumonia. The Kansas City Star's headline for her obituary was Champion of the Lowly. It read, Mrs. Green's loss will be felt keenly by hundreds in Kansas City whose names do not appear in blue books, but whose love for her was very great. Her life of 46 years was a long fight for the things she believed would improve social conditions. It wasn't until after Sarah Green's death that the rift in Kansas City's garment industry would hit a climax. Sarah Green and the Women's Trade Union League had been pushing for workers within the booming garment industry to unionize, demand better hours and pay. But as Catherine Warfield, back at the Garment Industry Museum, tells it, not everybody was on board.
2: Nellie Dawn was one of the companies that started the garment industry in Kansas City, but she never unionized.
1: Nellie Dawn, as we talked about at the beginning of this episode, was a big deal in Kansas City. She was the daughter of Irish immigrants, a self-made businesswoman. She designed stylish, affordable clothes for the average woman.
4: Some house dresses and daytime dresses, appropriate for every hour in the twenty-four. Really they're
1: also exciting. Here's a fashion expert talking about Nelly Don's collection, courtesy of the Mar Sound Archive. And then there's a whole group of new exclusive Nelly Don prints. Did you
4: get those made in Paris? No, sir.
1: They were created right here in our own America. Nellie Don was super successful even during the Great Depression, and her personal life was a public interest. She was kidnapped, rescued. She remarried a high-profile political leader, Senator James Reed. At the time, her story was a juicy one, made for gossip and the tabloid reels.
2: We talk about Nellie Dawn at the museum all the time because we have to. How can you talk about making clothes in Kansas City and, and not talk about Nellie Dawn? But she was never in the district because she wasn't union.
1: Nellie Dawn's business practiced what you'd call welfare capitalism. The company offered employees health care, vacations, social events, and different perks, which was a tactic used to instill worker loyalty to a company and to discourage labor organizing.
2: There was a lot of reasons she said she refused to unionize, and it kind of depends on who you ask. You know, if you ask a Nellie Dawn stitcher, they would say she treated them better than any union,
1: But a report filed by Sarah Green's Women's Trade Union League to the International Ladies Garment Workers Union called conditions in Kansas City's garment factories appalling. It compared them to sweatshops and accused them of using speed-up systems and daily quotas that left working women fatigued.
2: If you ask someone that worked with the garment union, they would say Nellie Dawn made lower quality clothing than we did. And so, I mean, even... Eighty years later, we're still kind of having this conversation back and forth of whether it was right for her to unionize or not.
1: <laughs> Eventually, Nellie Don actually sued the union for threatening her business, and she won. Neither of these women were perfect. But in the end, we need both the Nellie Dons and the Sarah Greens of the world. And they couldn't have done what they did without the rest of the women who helped shape the shift that took place among working women 100 years ago. This confrontation against class and gender discrimination. The recognition of women's basic rights. It's a battle that is by no means over. But there have been major milestones and turning points that have got
2: us to this place. We do talk a lot about over here is the role that women played kind of between first entering into, you know, the public sphere in the beginning of the 20th century. And then like where we are now with a woman vice president.
1: American women have been on a hell of a journey in the past century, and there is still work to be done. Women still face double standards, discrimination, and systemic patriarchy and misogyny. But the fight for better and more continues on. For context, it helps to look back to history, to some of the hardships some of our own elders have faced, how much things have or haven't changed since their era.
2: I think about my grandmother every time that I go to work.
1: Really, she was a sewer too. For Captain Warfield, it's emotional.
2: I mean, I sew on her sewing machine. She made all my mom's clothes. She made most of her clothes, and you know, she mended clothes and like literally until the day she died.
1: Her grandmother grew up on a small farm in southern Missouri, was a homemaker, and had a sixth-grade education. Catherine's grandma had a completely different set of opportunities than what she's had. She
2: was was a lot smarter than she gave herself credit for. She taught herself algebra from my older sister's high school math book. Um, I think she would have been uh, really excited about, about kind of where we are today. What was your name? Rosilda. I love uh, grandma name. Rosilda Matilda. <laughs> right, she hated that. <laughs>
1: Maybe take a minute right now and think of a woman in history who has shaped where we are today. Say their name and thank them. It can be Sarah Green, Nellie Don, or maybe it's someone who's a little bit more personal to you. I'll go ahead and do mine. Thanks, Grammy, Jean Hogan, and Grandma, Abuela, Graciela Portuguese. And while I'm at it, thanks, Mom, for everything you've gone through, fought for, put up with, and accomplished, Also, I could have even more opportunities this ever changing world, we're challenging to make better every day. I love you. A People's History of Kansas City is a production from KCUR Studios with the support of the Mid Continent Public Library. A special thanks to Rebecca Joe Acock and Kelsey Carls of the University of Kansas for their help and research, the Mars Sound Archives and KKFI plus KCUR's Matthew Long Middleton and Mackenzie Martin for their reads of H.H. Anderson and Sarah Green, plus Mike Russo, Byron Love, Krista Henthorne, Cody Newell, Ron Jones, Barb Shelley, Lisa Rodriguez, and Vicki Newton. If you want to get in touch, we do have a Facebook group. Just go to kcur.org slash People's History Group, or if you want to send me ideas, feedback, or whatever, shoot me an email, Suzanne, S-U-Z-A-N-N-E, at kcur.org. Music this episode from Benny Moten's Kansas City Orchestra, Dolly Parton, Blue Dot Sessions, Primary Color, Kea Labatt, Chad Crouch, and Poddington Bear. I'm Suzanne Hogan. Take care and thanks for listening.